Welcome to episode 164. Do you cook with vegetable oil? You know these plastic bottles full of what basically looks like liquid gold? And even if you don't cook that often, do you ever eat any foods that come in a bag, a box or a can? If you said, yep, I do, then you must listen to this episode because I share with you some little known truth about where quote unquote vegetable oils originated from, what they do to your body and how corrupt money pushed into our minds and our diets the idea that these are in any way healthy for you. This is a bit of a mind-bending episode. So buckle up and let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? It's 2022 and it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories and eating rabbit food. What a whirlwind life has been lately in the last, uh, you know, 12 to 24 months in the world we live in, especially when you're sitting on the side of the fence that I'm sitting on, which, uh, you know is what got me deplatformed from Instagram, which is actually really bizarre, you know. That's such a bizarre scenario that unfolded there because none of the stuff that I put out is particularly divisive. You obviously listen to the show, so you know that I, I very much um, I very much talk to people's like humanity and their being logical and being rational. And I've never once judged anybody for anything um, in you know in this world of, of health and and the stuff that we're talking about here. And and I really do support people. And it's the same with the situation that's unfolding in the world. So it's really quite confusing that I got deplatformed. Anyway, I did an episode on my deplatforming, or episode one hundred and sixty. But I just wanted to update you because a lot of people have asked and reached out and said, "Are you going to uh, are you going to create another account?" Um, and it's really weird to find, you know, someone that apparently is this podcaster out there in the world, in the health world, that's got no Instagram. And yes, that is a little bit weird that I don't have an Instagram. And and to be honest, I had a little bit of insecurity around not having an Instagram in case people heard me on other, in, you know, interviews, other podcasts, other summits and events um, and went looking for me on Instagram and thought, oh, this dude's, this dude's a scam. He's a liar. He doesn't even have an Instagram. <laughs> so, that's not the case. So, I did think, oh, maybe I should just create another profile and just leave it there so people know I'm a real human. But then I always also kind of thought, do I really want to get back on this digital dictatorship that you know does, didn't give me a fair say, that didn't even explain why I was kicked out, that gave me no opportunity to present information or evidence to whatever I was accused of doing, you know, so that was so bad, you know, which highlights that it, it is not a, just, a system built on justice and what's right and wrong. And it's simply built on what the digital dictatorship defines as right and wrong. So, that's currently where I'm at. That doesn't mean I won't get on there again in the future and set up another profile. Um, but I'll be totally honest, I feel free. Like I feel liberated from having that uh, app on my phone. Like I'm not, I'm not, I don't get distracted by it. I'm more productive with my work, which is the stuff that actually helps people. Yeah, social media connects me to a lot of people, which is nice. But I got to pay the bills over here. <laughs> I've actually got rent to pay. <laughs> you know, I've got to buy food for myself, and I got to look after Alfie. Alfie's the cat with no teeth. Um, so you know, it, there's a, there's a reality behind the social media highlight reel that you see and it's 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 a re- it's a real life. I have a real life that costs money. <laughs> 
So it's actually kind of liberating to be off the old distracting, procrastinating, um, you know, should be doing more important things app of Instagram. But maybe I'll be back on there soon. That doesn't mean that I would not encourage you to share the episodes over there on Instagram. Like, um, you know, I'm obviously here on these episodes sharing as much truth as I can. uh, But the catch is that the way that we communicate about this truth, about health and nutrition and wellness and medicine and the history of the world. uh, But the catch is the way we communicate about all this is through a digital dictatorship. So, we've got this conundrum, right? It's like we've got something to say that doesn't align with the privately owned businesses that we use to communicate. And so, if we say that thing in the wrong way or too loudly, we get noticed and we get removed and we reduce our capacity to talk and communicate about it. It's really quite a tricky situation to navigate, right? So, like that's why I say if you want to share this episode or any of the episodes to help the podcast grow and the podcast you know, get some more exposure so that you can help other people get the great information you've had. I very much hope you use Instagram and I hope you use Facebook and I hope you use Twitter and I hope you use all of these platforms that allow us to communicate with each other, right? Because they are really useful. The problem is the people that own them have a narrative, uh, but but whilst we're still the little guy, <laughs> we've got to, you know, we've got to leverage the world we're in a little bit uh, until we, you know, they, they say you've got to play by the rules until you're big enough to create your own rules, right? And I'm just, I'm not a billionaire yet, so I'm not um, I'm not a player at the table. So I'd very much appreciate your support in helping to grow this podcast and grow our family, our healthy friend family that we're, we're creating in the world by you know you listening to this podcast, you sharing it. And the only way that we can make change and influence these digital dictatorships is if we amass enough people that become passionate and are willing to show up to whether it be protests, whether it be writing letters to nutrition guideline people, whether it be fighting mandates, whatever it is, it's all about number. It's all about the volume of people willing to take action. So, if you're willing to take action to help grow this healthy family of healthy friends across the globe, I would be forever grateful, even though I'm struggling to do it myself because I've been deplatformed. Um, but you know, it's kind of on brand. It's kind of on brand to talk, to be deplatformed, de- right? <laughs> anyway, that's the update there. So today's episode, though, the shocking history of vegetable oil. So you've probably heard me say at least a hundred times on all these podcasts or in other interviews or summits I've been a part of that vegetable oils are devastating. And actually, I um, have hilariously heard them referred to as death juice and absolutely they're death juice. I genuinely think the number one piece of health advice I could give any human walking the earth, in the Western world at least, is to remove vegetable oils for good, forever. I know I say one tweak a week. That's that's one that you can change pretty rapidly because you can replace it with healthy oils, you know, in in the space of where the vegetable oils were. But the thing is, we've got to think about the history. I think there's humans have kind of this arrogance. They have this intellectual arrogance that they exist. And I know that sounds really weird and vague. Let me explain. So for some reason, and we've really noticed this in the last couple of years with the way the world's gone, humans that are alive have this arrogance of like, oh, I'm alive, I'm a smart person, so the wool could never be pulled over my eyes because it's 2022 and I'm a smart person and, you know, look at me. Nobody could trick me. And so we've got this situation that's unfolded in the last few years in multiple fronts, not just not just the one you know I'm referring to, but in all sorts of categories. Um, and 
We think when we look back at, say, World War II, we say, oh, my God, I could never do that. Can you believe? Can you believe those animals, what they did in World War II? World War II was only, for some people, a generation ago. We, we often know people that are alive that were around then. Why do we think we're so different? We're the same humans with the same DNA. We might look a little bit different. Our amino acids have been organized in a slightly different order, but we're the same people with the same capabilities of doing horrific horror, horrific, devastating tragedy, creating that for people and for groups of people. We're all capable of that. Absolute devastation, just as they were in World War II. And then we look back a few hundred years, we look to medieval times and think, oh, what barbarians. But again, as we know, we're the same people with pretty much the same DNA that are capable of the same level of devastation and horror. And then we look back to like the Viking era. So we're talking 700s maybe, you know, we, and we think, oh, what crazy people. Yet some of the stuff they did then still happens today because we're all capable, you know, when pushed to the edge, to the limit, right? And so the, the reason I think we've got this intellectual arrogance of simply being alive is because... I think every generation that's ever lived has had that. They're like, I'm alive, you know, I'm intelligent. That couldn't happen to me. I couldn't be in that situation. And the reason I bring that to our attention is because the wool has been pulled over our eyes every decade, every year of human history by some kind of group or organization that is seeking some kind of gain from the group, right? And that is just the human nature. It's the been the way since humans have walked the earth and it's no different because you are alive today and you are capable of that and you are also capable of being victim to that and not even realizing because we're stuck in this arrogance and, and I was definitely there too. You know, when I started out as a scientist, I was so arrogant. I was like, huh, naturopaths, herbs, like <laughs> food, you know, if, we, if diet was the thing, we'd already know. We'd all be helping everybody. That was before I understood capitalism and tyranny and money-hungry and power-hungry men and women. And yes, there's women in there too. There's plenty of women billionaires that have made some terrible choices for massive groups of people for their own gain. You know, so the point is, we're all humans. We're all susceptible to slipping into this. And I think we all know the people that have slipped into it. And even if you think you're on the woke side of an issue, you should perpetually question yourself. Be like, hang on, do I have it right? Am I actually wrong about this, right? Because you don't want to slip in the other direction. Just because you found another truth and adopted that, you might have been right when you, where you started. The point is to explore all of these conversations on either side. And there's about 25 sides to a, to a story when the economy is involved, which is why I'm going to share with you the shocking history of vegetable oils because the wool's being pulled over lots of people's eyes because of business. All right, so here we go. What is what am I talking about when I'm referring to vegetable oils? So they're actually not vegetable oils, right? And I'll touch on uh, where that that changed. Uh, but we're talking about canola oil, soybean oil, grapeseed oil, cottonseed oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, rape seed oil. What more information do you need than a, a seed that's called rape? Like it's gonna be bad for you. And the last one, corn oil. So there's more than this, but these are what um, Kate, Dr. Kate Shanahan, refers to as the hateful eight because they're so freaking devastating for our biology, right? So basically, well I want to go through mainly the history and a little bit of a little bit of this like the structure and function um, and some alternatives on the other side. So stick around because I'll definitely give you some alternatives. Um, but the thing is 
They're, what they are is polyunsaturated fatty acids. And what that means is that there's lots of double bonds in the molecule. Wherever the double bond happens means that the molecule bends. So if you imagine you start with a straight line molecule, let's just literally just imagine a straight line. And then you, wherever there's a, what we call a double bond, there's a bend in that line, right? So it's no longer flat on the table. It's going to bend. And then with an, because it's a polyunsaturated fatty acid, there's many of these bends. So poly, many of these bends. And so you get to the point where this, this, um, Fatty acid is bending in many different places. And so, what that means is that you can't actually stack up many of these oils on top of one another, right? So, they're really unstable. On, on the contrary, we've got saturated fatty acids. So, they're, they're, imagine the straight line again. And what it means by saturated is that it's saturated in hydrogen bonds. That means that at every bonding location, there's an even amount. So, what that means is that, go back to the straight line, is that it stays as a straight line. And guess what? When you've got molecules that are straight lines, they stack super easily, right? Because they're flat, they're they're stackable. And so, what that means is that usually at room temperature, they are a solid, okay? They're a a solid and not a liquid. Something that's more unstable is a liquid at room temperature because it can't stack up in the right order and connect together at room temperature, right? Um, And so, the saturated one has saturated acids, fats, the saturated fats in your diets don't have double bonds, straight and flat. There's no space in between where the kinks are from the, the polyunsaturated fatty acids. Now, vegetable oils are basically straight up poofers. They're called polyunsaturated fatty acids. So, they're, they, they don't stack well. They're highly processed. And what they do is they are so highly reactive that when they go into the body, because they've got all these double bonds and these are locations that, um, and because the molecule has been heat treated and chemical treated in so many different ways, that it's so unstable that it's highly reactive, right? Um, and, And through the process, it becomes highly reactive. And so, when it goes into your body, guess what it reacts with? Everything that it runs into, basically. It's trying to collect all of these different molecules to get stable. Remember, in the world of science and in the, wor- in the world, whenever something's unstable, it always seeks balance, right? It always seeks stability. Um, and that's what happens in our cells is that it's, it goes and takes that stability from your DNA or from the, the uh, lining of your arteries or your brain. And so, it, it takes all of these things from your body, which damages it and calls, it causes lots of free radical damage, actually on a monumental scale, do polyunsaturated fatty acids cause damage, uh, free radical damage. It's huge. So, we're going to get into a bit of the history, right? Um, so, the, the, in the processing of um, uh, these poofers, what they wanted to do is they wanted to get these polyunsaturated fatty acids into a way where they actually would harden at room temperature. And so, they go through a process called hydrogenation, which is essentially trying to drown them in hydrogen bonds, much like the saturated fat, um, so that it starts to like it's more it's more stable right so and you want to and the idea of that is that it reduces the oxidation that's going to happen um and then it becomes quote unquote stable but it's kind of like it's kind of like a false state of stability right because it's all, the molecules already been damaged so much in the process that this hydrogenation and you can see this on the back of labels uh where it says partially hydrogenated or hydrogenated vegetable oil or just vegetable oil so anywhere it says that um you can expect this hydrogenation manufacture process to have taken place now I want to go back in history. So, where did this all begin? So, remember, we've got this arrogance of being alive. So, I want you to put down the arrogance of being alive because we're all guilty of it at times and just be like, all right, I'm open to some new ideas that, that, that began long before I was born. 
So we have to accept that lots and lots of things have been happening and in play and in rotation for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. There's been people at the top that have been rolling things out, handing them down to their sons mostly, sometimes their daughters, over generations and generations to, and essentially passing on the baton to continue the job. And in some instances, it's happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and so, in this case, I'm only going to go back to the early 1800s. So, a couple of hundred years, right? So, 1820 to 1860, what they used to do is they used to use whale oil whale oil. Um, And the reason they introduced that and they harvested that from whales was to use for industrial machinery, to clean industrial machinery um, and lubricate the machinery as well. So, it had both. There was different types of the oil and different um, derivatives and they were able to clean machinery but also use it for lubrication. And this is in the Industrial Revolution, the early days of where machines are starting to come about. And so, whale oil was was the thing for about, you know, half a century or a little less than that, right? Um, And so, so from there, they ran out of whales to kill, basically, that were easy to catch, you know, in the 1800s. Um, and so the whale supply really dropped. And so then from about the 60s on, they started realizing the cotton boom was going crazy at this time. Remember, we're in the Industrial Revolution. Um, commercialization of products is about to go bananas. Um, it's already in the process. And hence, they went in the 60s then to cottonseed oil because they discovered they had this byproduct from cotton production, right? And so Over the next um, sort of another half a century, um, you know, the 60s to the early uh, 1900s, they were using different types of oil and finding different ways to develop oil. And again, this oil was often used in machinery, to clean machinery. And then there was a businessman that thought, because when when the oil, when these oils... um, Went got cold, they hardened, uh, and you might know this after you're cooking and you leave the tray out on the um, on the bench or you turn the pan off and the what was once liquid then goes hard at room temperature, right? Uh, it was liquid in the bottle and now it's hard at room temperature because it's been totally destroyed in the heating process. And there was a businessman, and you might know a company called Procter & Gamble, that thought, this, when it hardens, it looks like lard. And keep in mind, lard was normal. Uh, suet was normal, um, which is lamb fat. So, you know, the the fat of pigs, the fat of cows, the fat of um, lamb or sheep rather, was used as cooking oil. That's been normal for centuries, many centuries, probably over thousands of years, right? Um, And so, they were like, oh, it kind of looks like that and it's an oil. So, maybe we can sell it. You know, we're making tons of it already. So, maybe we can sell this lard lookalike as lard basically, as cooking oil. And so... Procter & Gamble, this company, which is still is a, a multi-billion dollar organization today, um, they created a product and guess what it was called? You might recognize this, Crisco. So, we're talking around 1910, 1911, Crisco, they came out with this lard alternative, right? Um, and so, what they did is they were like, you can use this instead. It's easier to use. Um, and previously, they basically ran the machines on it, right? Um, and so, over the, over that time, up until the 40s, they figured out how to stabilize it uh, and then not just sell it as a lard lookalike, and it was a really bright white color. Um, but then they started to, once they figured, figured out how to stabilize it in the 1940s, they were able to then sell this now Remember, machine oil stabilized version as in a bottle, as a liquid, as cooking oil. And 
then remember we're, we're in the we're starting to really be in the crux of the commercial revolution of you know the um, manufacturing revolution and producing heaps and heaps of stuff and marketing and advertising's really starting to be understood super well to the point that it's really easy to make a lot of money um, and so. They had this marketing campaign come to the 50s. So, if you think of like the modern woman in the 40s and the 50s and what they did, they spoke to the inner woman, right? They had this marketing campaign to get this Crisco oil product off the ground into homes, into kitchens and they talked about how they're essentially liberating women from having to do the work of their... Uh, forebearers, their their grandmothers and their mothers because they used to have to go and churn butter, right? They used to have to go and actually cold press oils in the way that, you know, they should be today and churn butter, which is a physical task. It was a laborious, laboursome task. And so, the advertising campaign was literally like... Women of the world, it's the 50s. The progressive modern woman doesn't have to churn her butter. (laughs) You can just buy this bottle of vegetable oil, basically. Well, they weren't calling it vegetable oil yet, but they were calling it Crisco. Um, And they made it as well, like a really, in America, they made it a really patriotic thing um, in the sense that like, you know, you're supporting American farmers and you're supporting American jobs. and And so it became this real thing, like the modern American woman uses Crisco. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, you can see this is like we're already like, you know, 40 odd years into the Procter & Gamble strategy. Um, And so, along uh, the other bit of the advertising that they played with here in the 50s was playing along with the animal ethics uh, card. And it's like, you know, no animals have to get hurt to create this kind of thing because it's plants and plants don't have feelings, right? (laughs) There's a part of me that can't wait until we can prove that plants have feelings and feel pain. (laughs) (laughs) that's going to put the vegans well out of whack. (laughs) Anyway, 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 moving right along. Then, so in the earlier part of the 19th century... um Heart disease and heart strokes and all that kind of thing—they weren't. It wasn't really much of an issue. But cardiology in the field of medicine. Keep in mind, medicine only started really in the late 1800s. In the early 1900s, cardiology was just in the first half was just kicking off because there wasn't much going on in the world when it came to heart disease. There was a there was a need for the specialty, uh, but it was really a small a small group and the, um, the American Heart Association was created um, and it was this small, tiny office, right? It was this small group of people uh, that was specializing in this group of diseases that were pretty rare at the time. However, overnight, and I saw this in a lecture by Nina Titschultz. She wrote The Big Fat Surprise, brilliant book, uh, brilliant book, highly recommend reading it. Um, she talks about the fact that um, in, in the records, in the, own, the history books of American Heart Association, their own history books, they literally say overnight millions and millions and millions of dollars came in. What do you think happened? Procter & Gamble, who had this amazing oil to sell to the world, decided to cut a financial deal with the American Heart Association, who was definitely in need of funding. It was just this tiny office, right? And then this multi, 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 multi-million dollar company comes along and says, hey, we think we can get longevity for our product and help Americans or help the people of the world um, if, you, if we get you on board. So, what we'll do is we'll, be your, we'll fund you with money you cannot even imagine if you certify our product and back our product with research, basically. And so, overnight the American Heart Association just becomes like the go-to place for health information, right? Um, And so, paid by, you know, these guys. And coincidentally, in the 50s as well, 
what happens is Ansel Keys. So Ansel Keys is a famous fat researcher that is totally debunked now because he produced fraudulent research and lied about his research. But his research was part of the original research that really pushed that saturated fat was bad and polyunsaturated fat was okay because the research showed that people with you know, that had saturated fat in their diet, increased heart disease. It was called the Seven Country Study. And actually, when I started the podcast, one of the first things that I did a couple of years ago was do an episode on which fat is bad, which fat is making you fat. And so, if you want to learn a bit more of the history of Ansel Keys and how his research really fucked us all up, <laughs> then go to episode 11. That really is an OG episode. That was ages ago. Um, but I've got it open here on the computer. Three years ago, it says here, wow. Time flies. So, episode 11, which fat is making you fat? Check that out. Um, but anyway, so so picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. In this time, Ansel Keys produces this research. He's actually challenged and people were saying, no, we think it's sugar. But the people that challenged him didn't quite have the same political standing. He was like friends with all the right people, was just, you know, the right kind of salesman for his ideas and um, did really well. Then 1958, margarine pops onto the scene as a fully, as an entirely polyunsaturated fatty acid. So remember all these double bonds, all, all of this reactivity. And what they used to do is they used to add color to it. They used to have to add the yellow color to margarine, which is why if you remember, I remember as a kid, uh, my auntie, who's incredibly unhealthy and told me to shut up at Christmas because we all have to die of something <laughs> as she just sucked down her cigarette. Um, <laughs> um, I remember going to her house as a kid uh, and the margarine was like fluorescent yellow and we didn't, we didn't do margarine at home with my mum and dad and so I was always like, whoa, what is this like bright colored stuff? But anyway, the American Heart Association is obviously supporting margarine because, well, our old mate Procter & Gamble are paying them to support their products, right? Um, And so, we've got the Ansel Keys research uh, that gets pumped out into the... uh, um, So, that happened in the 50s and starts to really get traction in the 60s and inform... It informs the good old food pyramid. Oh, there we go. So... Uh, over this time as well, the uh, late 50s, 60s and 70s, the food pyramid is informed by decades of research and and, and informed by lots of research that the uh, Heart Association puts out too. Uh, remember, at this point, the average person, the average everyday person out there thinks the Heart Association is out there for their help and their favour. 
Now, I want you to think about this just as a total side note. What other industries, organizations, professional bodies out there exist that you believe in just because they were around when you were born and people that you respected said that you should check this out? Or because the news said it or politicians said it or scientists said it or doctors said it. How many institutions, organizations, whoever is out there, have you just simply believed? Because most people don't know that the American Heart Association was just, it was a business strategy for Procter & Gamble at the time. It's obviously a lot more diverse and complex now, but it's not like somebody ever walked in and said, hey guys, I know we started bad, but how about we change the whole philosophy of this organization to actually helping people? I'm not sure that's really happened <laughs> ever since. But anyway, these groups and Ansel Keys research informed the first food pyramid. And so, in this process, they started recommending vegetable oils, aka machinery fuel or machinery oil, as a health product because it wasn't a saturated fat. Remember, Ansel Keys research and all the research that came after that supported the fact that saturated fat causes heart disease and we're seeing a spike in heart disease, so everybody get off the saturated fat. So, the vegetable oil industry, which is far more than just Procter & Gamble at this point because there's all sorts of oils and there's all sorts of companies and competition, they're like, our product's not technically saturated fat, so we can sell it as a health product. So, then they started pushing the idea of like, replace your... Um, saturated fat with our fats because our fats are healthy. And regulation on on advertising and that type of thing was obviously super loose back then. It was basically the Wild West. And look, it kind of still is if you're um, you know able to make the government money. <laughs> advertising is the Wild West. But if you're not, well, just like me, you'll be deplatformed. Um, and so, they started marking it as a health product. Then, at some point in the 60s or 70s, I'm not totally sure on this, they a group of men sat down and decided to call these nut and seed and plant oils that they were putting through lots and lots of processing to get the oil out at the other end. Um, they used to they refine them, they bleach them, they deodorize them, they clean them, and they sat down around a table and thought, you know what, you know what would be really great for business? Instead of calling these oils whatever we're calling them at the moment, how about we call them all vegetable oils? Because people think vegetables are healthy and so they'll think they're basically drinking vegetables or cooking their food in vegetables. And here we are today, everybody thinks vegetable oils are healthy because it says the word vegetable when they're not actually vegetables. (laughs) Another big fat business lie, right? Um, And so from there, of course, began the cholesterol research off the back of all the Ansel Keys stuff. And just in case you're interested, I've actually recorded an episode on cholesterol, episode 136, Is My Cholesterol Really a Problem? There's another rabbit hole for you. Go and check it out. (laughs) And so, they found that reducing your saturated fat reduced your cholesterol and therefore it reduced your likelihood of um, heart disease, you know, and all the things that fall into that cardiovascular risk category. However, what they didn't tell you, that the attendees or the uh, participants died at twice the rate of cancer. They had higher the number of strokes (laughs) and they found in the other groups that the people that had more saturated fat had less cancer and less strokes and less of these other things. (laughs) It's just like, it's one of the things people often are shocked to find out that much of this research was actually done. And here's another thing that I want you to think about in, in regards to history. It's a quote or an idea that blew my mind when I first heard it. The version of history that you hear or you're taught in school or by your parents 
is the version of history that was told by those that won. Think about that for a second. The version of history that I was taught was only the perspective and the experience of those that were victorious. It puts a whole other conversation out there to be like, how many other sides to this story have been buried? Because they either didn't survive to tell the story or they were wiped off the face of the earth. You know, there's cancer scientists and doctors that have been wiped off the face of the earth. There's people in the food industry that have been wiped off the face of the earth because they posed such a massive financial risk. I've been deplatformed. Maybe that's step one. If I disappear, you know that this podcast was probably why (laughs) I'm too much of a financial risk. (laughs) But the point is, the research is out there and you often don't hear both sides of the story. You just hear the bit that has been used to create more money for the people that want to create more money. Um, And I'm sharing the other side of the story because I want you to be healthy. We want to grow this world of happy, healthy friends, (laughs) right? Grow the family. So, anyway, where are we? 70s. So, then we move to the 80s and the National Institute of Health, and most of this is in America, sit down, they have a big meeting, they have a workshop and they do it over a number of years to figure out why is heart disease still rising? Yet we've been telling everybody to reduce their saturated fat. We've got all these amazing vegetable oils that are helping everybody do that and they're still trying to figure out why, why on earth uh, is heart disease and cardiovascular risk still going through the roof? Obviously, and this is where the culture comes from doctors, obviously people just are too gluttonous and they just can't help themselves. The whole time it was sugar. I'm telling you now, the whole time it was sugar. Because when they took out the fat from everything as, a, as based on this story, they replaced it with sugar. And if you look at the history um, that Kate Shanahan um, documents super well in her book Deep Nutrition and um, uh, Tina uh, Teicholz in her book The Big Fat Surprise, it's shocking because the consumption of vegetable oil across you know the masses is almost directly proportional to the increase in cardiovascular risk. It's like, how did they freaking miss this? And I would argue that they missed it for two reasons. One, business. Like, I don't want to give up billions of dollars. Fair enough. That'd be pretty hard to say no to. And the other thing is that ego. They were so attached to the research that they had done. It's like when I worked at the hospital. People would often say, do you ever tell people you know you know, that there's other ways to manage cancer? I'm like, no, I would never tell them that because their ego can't handle it. Some of these doctors have spent 40 years dedicating their life to this. And I think that's a big part of these types of stories is that all the men and women that are involved that are, you know, of age, you know, and I mean, like, they're in the end of their careers, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they're actually like, no, I can't, I couldn't possibly, my identity would collapse if I admitted or learnt and then agreed with the idea that my life's work has been wrong and hurtful and harmful. Nobody wants to admit that. So, you know, I can relate to the humanity in them that, you know, we're all capable of doing these things and being these people and may have examples in our life where we stayed attached to things that we knew weren't right because our ego couldn't handle it or because our hip pocket couldn't handle it, right? Uh, So, you know, we're all humans. But I think understanding the psychology of the humans that drive the machine really helps us to potentially build a better machine. You know, play by the rules until you can build a bigger machine, a bigger and better machine. Anyway, so they're trying to figure it out, replace the saturated fats with polyunsaturated fat vegetable oils. Oh, that's so helpful. You know, great advice. And obviously now in 2022, we can see the, you know, another 40 years basically of that devastating advice. 
And the other thing is too, in the um, late 80s to ni- early 90s, they started um, a bit of a campaign against some of the oils that are actually healthy and in nature. Um, and they had a campaign, guess who it was funded by? Our old mates at the uh, <laughs> American Heart Association um, against tropical oils. And again, they appealed to the patriotism of Americans because they said not only will it kill you, tropical oils will kill you because they come from weird countries in the world, but you're putting American farmers out of business. Um, and they joked about it in the advertising um calling it tree lard, trying to make it sound like gross and like, what the hell is tree lard? That sounds horrific. You know, and they were bagging out these gross third world countries where these oils came from, being like, it's dirty and scummy. And and then guess what? <laughs> and I want you to really think about this too. Here's another thinking point for world situations. Um, the American Heart Association, who was behind that, um, you know, that tree lard campaign then put out an article and said it was the article was literally called why all the hubbub over coconuts so they were playing both sides of the narrative to confuse you right so they were were backing the advertising campaigns against quote-unquote tropical oils and then they put an article and some research out being like they're not that bad now think about the world situation right now and who might be in charge of putting both sides of the conversation out there and why do they put both sides why does the one person or one institution put both competing arguments out into the space right it's a mechanism of control uh, because there's a saying in sales in business a confused mind never buys Um, and i think that applies here when you control the narrative by putting both like feeding both sides of the opposition everybody stays confused they don't know what to believe so they just default to what they know right and what they know in this instance is oh i'm american so yeah i'll just keep buying vegetable oil right that's what i believe that's my theory Governments do it all the time, you know, because, you know, they've got to keep the strategy going. And, and, you know, we think of the left and think of the right in politics, but they're both wings of the same bird. So, you know, it's all coming from the same central location. Anyway, so now in the modern world, we've got refined, bleached, deodorized, clean, hexane solvent used vegetable oils that uh, we're pouring into our pans and on our foods. And and now it's creeped into every single corner of the entire food system. I want you to have an experiment and I want you to go shopping and look through all the um, products that you put in your trolley and look on the back for one of the hateful eight. One of the hateful eight, or, or it might just say veggie oil, and it doesn't matter if it's organic. The problem is the vegetable oil, not how it was grown. I mean, how it was grown makes it even worse. But um, it's devastating in the way that it is produced because of all those steps I just mentioned with the deodorizing and bleaching and refining and cleaning. And it's like some of them have 30, 40, 50 steps of manufacture in order to produce these oils because you can't get them naturally. You can't produce them in nature. That's just not how they exist. They don't just exist in nature like that, right? They take a lot of work to squeeze oil out of some of these plants and get it to a volume that you can sell tons en masse daily, right? And so, then we get to move forward where everything in the supermarket's got it in because you basically need vegetable oil for shelf life, you know, because these days things can last forever. So, shelf it helps with shelf life. Um, it then also helps make it shiny. So, a lot of the foods are visually appealing uh, in plastic packaging. So, you look through the packaging and think, oh, that kind of looks nice, even though it's been there for three months because the vegetable oil has been keeping it coated nicely. Um, so, it makes them look pretty. It gives foods crunch. It gives it all of this texture and, and physical experience that the consumer really enjoys and really indulges in because it's like, oh, Oh, I love this. Like, it gives this whole mouth pleasure experience, right? All whilst being like, there's vegetable oil in my bread. Literally, the healthy bread. 
the you know with the branding and the packaging that looks like your healthy bread in the supermarket have a look at the ingredients have a look at your yogurt have a look at your garlic bread have a look at everything in the bakery have a look at everything in all of the aisles basically it's basically in everything even the health aisle look in the health aisle flip it over it's so infiltrated into everything that even healthy you know healthy people think that vegetable oil is not bad i know people that eat pretty well that cook with vegetable oil because they think it's good, right? It's not good. It's the worst thing you can put in your body. It's literally called death juice by people, experts in the space. (laughs) Experts who I've learned a lot of this information that I'm sharing with you today from. uh, The likes of Kate Shanahan and Gary Torbs and Nina Teacholtz and David Gillespie. All these guys that have, all of these amazing humans that have written amazing books on this type of thing, as well as the abundance of research that's out there um, that we just don't get to hear about. So, the modern world, it's everywhere. And of course, these, um, these vegetable oils, these trans fats, um, which they're called now, you know, the vegetable oils are often called trans fats or the hydrogenation process creates trans fats. Got to the point, right, where trans fats are now illegal because uh, a scientist who was 97 years old, who was around when the um, American Heart Association kicked off and said, this is amazing. This is these vegetable oils. Um, a 97-year-old scientist sued the FDA to get rid of trans fats, right? Trans oils. Um, so what did the what did the um, vegetable oil industry do? They created genetically modified crops so they could just sneak under. They could just sneak under the regulation, and now their vegetable oils still classify as per necess- you know the FDA's classification of not being a trans fat. But they're still just as devastating. You still do not want these things in your body. It's not like they went from, oh, we've got the most devastating fluid that you can put in your body and um, because the government changed the law recently, oh, now we're basically making steak and kale. (laughs) That's not what happened. They moved the bar about 0.1%. So don't let that, uh, you know, don't let that reclassification make you think that they're like all of a sudden healthy. It's still doing the same thing. It's still increasing rates from heart disease. It's still in increasing cardiovascular risk because it's damaging your gut and your uh, your arteries and your brain. Remember, the the brain is made up of fat. It's mostly fat, right? The and the fats that your brain is made up of is made up of, of a lot of the vegetable oils that you put in because that's the fats you're getting. So if most of your diet is full of polyunsaturated fatty acids, you probably have significant low, significantly low energy levels, significantly um, debilitating brain fog, gut health issues because your body and your brain is physically built from these toxic damage vegetable oils. So you, your brain, if we scanned your brain, it would probably be significantly damaged. Good news is you can turn that shit around. <laughs> We know that these things seriously deteriorate the body, especially if you've been doing it for decades and decades and decades. The good news is that all of that oxidative damage can be reversed if you start getting this shit out of your diet, right? And at the very least, walk to the kitchen right now, open the cupboard and see these, you know, plastic containers of golden juice, death juice, and just put them in the bin. Get rid of them, right? Get rid of them because they're super devastating. It's basically machinery cleaner. <laughs> we, we know that. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot different now, but it's not healthy to put in your body or on your skin. And in some second and third world countries, they actually use vegetable oil on the skin of newborn babies because they believe it's healthy for them. It gives them a vitamin E hit. And yes, there's still nutrition in these things. But look, if to get somewhere in life, you need to get punched in the face 500 times, it's probably not the best way to go. So my point is, 
if to get some vitamin E, you've got to get pay the cost of huge uh, biological and uh, free radical damage. Yeah, don't do it. It's a shit deal, <laughs> especially for newborn babies. Oh my god, that's the worst time you could introduce this stuff. Um, anyway, what to do instead, right? What if you want to get your body back? You want to get your gut health back? Uh, you want to get you reduce your brain fog? Find some energy levels. What do you cook with instead? What do you look for instead? Okay, animal fat, ghee, olive oil at low temperatures. Um, tallow is cow's fat, so it comes from cows. Suet comes from lamb, so it's sheep fat. Lard comes from pigs. Organic butter. Ideally, all of these should be organic, but when we're talking about dairy, I don't often recommend dairy to many people because 70 to 75% of the planet's population don't actually have the enzyme to process it. Um, Even if you don't get symptoms, if you're putting things through your body that aren't processed, there's consequences. So, if you do use butter, definitely make sure it's um, organic. But these are the types of fats that you should use. Coconut oil as well. It's another one at low temperatures. Olive oil, low to medium coconut low temperatures why because just like the processing of vegetable oils if you heat some oils too hot you will damage them right so you don't want to do that animal fats are the most reliable i use ghee a lot uh that's probably my number one go-to but i also cook a lot of bone broth and i take the fat off the bone broth so i have a lot of um suet so the lamb fat that i cook in and it tastes so much better when you cook in animal fat it's delicious and that's actually what they did for thousands of years well at the very least many hundreds of years so these are the things you should do instead right and remember you're in control of your health no one's putting a gun to your head and saying you've got to have these things You can choose differently. It will take a lot of time because emotional eating is a major factor in this. Vegetable oils often pull out the flavors in sweet foods and savory foods. So, there's another reason they're so good for business is that they make these foods more addictive. So, if you you know all the devastating information you would have heard on this podcast about sugar, unfortunately, vegetable oils are actually worse, right? They're both enemy number one and enemy number two, very, very close, one and two. There's not much to separating them. But this, I would say, is worse than sugar because it's pretty easy to identify the types of foods that do have sugar and don't have sugar. There's a bunch of sneaky ones in there that you wouldn't expect that have added sugar. And um, yeah, it's probably a lot of things you may or may not use that you think, oh, this is healthy. This doesn't have sugar in it. A lot of those things do. The catch is all of them have vegetable oil, basically all of them. So, I hope this episode has really opened your mind to the business, financial, economic history of vegetable oils and the history of it should tell you why they're not very good for your body. There's a lot of corrupt science in there, so make sure you check out episode 11, uh, which fat makes you fat. That's going to be really beneficial to anybody that um, you know wants to dig deeper into this because you'll understand the research component a little more and the difference between the types of fats. Um, and uh, begin making a change today. Start with an action. Um, so, thanks for tuning in. I hope you've loved this episode. And if you got something from this episode, you know someone that cooks in vegetable oil, maybe your mum, a nonna, a relative, a partner that you're like, we have to change this. And this is an easy change. I'm not telling you to get rid of donuts forever. Like This is a really easy change because you're swapping an oil for an oil. You're just taking out super toxic, devastating death juice and replacing it with healthy oils, uh, right? Which, which again, doesn't make the oil a health food. This is a common misconception. People think because I took about the thing that I got told was bad, the replacement must then therefore be good for my health. Be careful to not make that distinction with everything because 
unless, like I said before, if you replace vegetable oil with kale, that might be now a health food, right? But if you heat some of these healthy oils, there's a difference between healthy and less damaging. But if you heat some of these less damaging and more natural oils, they're going to be way less damaging. Um, But also, they can become damaging if you heat them too hot for too long um, and don't use them in the right way. Animal fat's pretty safe for the most part. Ghee's good for the most of the things that I cook. You know, a pretty standard kind of guy. Vegetables, meat, um, you know, eggs, bacon, all that kind of stuff. Um, and things like bacon end up cooking in their own fat. So, you know, that's totally fine. Anyway, I hope this has been useful. Share this with a friend. Please help the deplatformed me and this podcast get out to as many people as possible. So, if you could take action by just sharing it with a friend, sharing it in your social media story, whenever a conversation comes up about vegetable oils, be like, hey, check out Maddie's episode 164. The history of vegetable oils will blow your mind. And it's not just the history of vegetable oils that will blow your mind. It's the history of the American Heart Association and all the corrupt research that we now understand, thanks to Procter & Gamble, why it exists and why it's allowed to be put out. Because money talks. Anyway, thanks for listening to another episode of the podcast. I've loved having you here listening to this and I love being able to deliver this amazingness to you because it will transform your life. I'm not even kidding, especially an episode like this. Uh, In the meantime, check out any of the other episodes while you're here. Uh, If you've got any requests, feel free to reach out. Um, Something else that's really helpful for poor little deplatform people like us is giving this podcast uh, on the app that you listen a five-star rating and ideally writing a couple of sentences of review just to say what you think of the show, what you got out of it, how it's impacted your life. It really helps because when other people come across it, they often scroll through reviews to, to be like, what's in this for me? Is this any good? Um, and if your words are there and they're authentic and true for you, then it'll connect with other people and be like, all right, I might be able to get some benefit out of this and we can grow the healthy friends family. (laughs) All right, team. Thanks so much for being here. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast or whichever app you use and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.